this whole thing took a place with um, um, at the end with Haman and Mordechai with the Suda. So for nine years she was the queen, and that a lady could hold back such news for nine years is the greatest miracle. <laughs> That's the first thing we have. Secondly, um, I'm sorry, just one second. Yes. Okay, so what I wanted to do was um, two things. Number one, talk about the... Uh, hold on, let me just get this on here. On Purim, let's go through the... Koach uh, of Purim. There's a tremendous thing over here. Give me one second. Give me one second. I think. Okay. Okay. Just the one. Say one thing. You just the one. Tremendous power. Tremendous power. We have an echo over here. Somebody has to mute himself. Okay. The Shemesh Shmuel was one of the big tzaddikim, and he describes what's the power of Purim. What is Purim different than the whole year? Even in a certain respect. Uh, more powerful than Yom Kippurim. Yom Kippur, Kippur is like Pur, like Purim. The holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, is like Purim. That meaning Purim is in a certain respect, a higher matre. What's so great about Purim? And what does that do for us? What can we do with our lives with this pre- powerful um, opportunity that we have? So the Shemesh says an unbelievable thing. It says like this, if you read the story, the Pasuk says that um, that Zeret Ishto, the wife of Haman, told uh, told Haman that he should build a tree 50 amot tall and in the morning go tell the king that you built this thing and hang Mordechai on, on, the, on, on it. Now the Shemesh will ask a question. You don't tell something to it. You don't tell the king anything. You don't tell him. You could ask him. You could plead. You could request. You don't go to a king and tell him what to do. <laughs> this is so unusual. How could uh, the the the, the um, how could Haman go? And how could her recommendation be that he should, should go tell the king what to do? And that's exactly what happened. Because we read afterwards in the story, Haman bar lechatzar bet hamelach hitzona. He comes to the uh, to the palace, the Lamar Lamelech, to tell the king what to do. So to understand this, what is Haman? Where did he come from to to, to dictate to Achishverosh what to do? So the Gemara says that when we see see in the uh, in the Megillah that that Achishverosh built up the status of Haman, and he raised him up. Above all the other sarim, by Yasemet Kiso, Me'al Kola Sarim, from all the other uh, leaders, Haman was the top. So the Gemara says that he built a throne for Haman, taller than Achashverosh's Haman his throne himself. He gave him a bigger throne than the king himself. And the Gemara Megillah, Tesvav, says that Mordechai. When it says in the Megillah that he cried a great cry, why did he cry? So there's a machlok at Rav Shmuel. Rav says that he saw that Haman was greater than Achashverosh. And that means that there was nothing that he could do. 
Mordechai's connection was to the king's device. He was a, he was a, a sir, he was a uh, whatever a minister for the king, an advisor for the king. But if Haman, who hated him, was on top of the king, so there's nothing he could do. It's out of his hands. That was what Bob says. Shmuel says something even more powerful, and you got to sit down for this one. Shmuel and the Gemara said that, and Rashi says it's twisted around because we want to say it a nice way. That Muhammad was was here elevated to a level higher than Hashem. <laughs> I would not say this that the Malchus, that his level that he reached, that what happened was when Hashem saw Israel sin at the feast where they were using the candle of Beit Hamikdash, and then it was sealed in Shemaim that that's it. You know they have to start Klaus all over again. At that point. Uh, Hashem gave Haman absolute authority to wipe out Klai Yisrael, that even Hashem will defer to that. So that's why Moshe, uh, Mordechai, when he, when he found out about this, that he was greater, either greater than Hashem, or greater than Kivayotchol Hashem, in terms of the authority he was given to destroy Klai Yisrael, he saw that we were finished. So what happened in the end? So we had that tremendous, tremendous power that was given to him. So what happened in the end? What happened in Purim? When the day of Purim came, everything turned around. And Ahasuerus gave to Esther a mark of the house of Haman, meaning the court that Haman had to be in charge of everything. She gave all, it was given over to Esther. And just like Haman told the Melech what to do, or told Hashem what to do, as we see in the Gemara, so too, every year on Purim, we take the place of Haman, we have the power to tell Hashem what to do. And we know, which is a tremendous, unbelievable thing. We never had this a whole year. That we could tell Hashem, okay, send me down hell. I want good children. I want to have Hanasah. I'm telling you Hashem what to do. And Hashem has to listen. Because we're replacing the status that Haman had. But it's not so easy. It just can't say, okay, no problem. Friday morning, I'm going to ask for this big deal to go through and this and that, and it's automatically going to happen. There's one condition, small condition. The condition is that we have to have, just like uh, the way we request it, it has to be the same way, just like Haman wanted to hang Mordechai, and he wanted it with his whole body and his whole, his whole neshama, that he would, this was more important than anything in the world, to destroy Haman and B'nai Israel. We have to put our whole heart and soul into our tzibot on Friday, just like Haman did the opposite way. And then Hashem will, we can dictate to Hashem what to do. So the bottom line is, it's a very simple thing. Friday morning, or Purim, the whole, the whole day of Purim, when we pray, we got to put in all of our kohot, put in all of our soul in it, and really mean it. And then we can ask, we can demand for everything. That's why we can pull Yeshuot on Purim that we can't do a whole year. That's the power of Purim that the Shemesh Wolf says. You have the power to tell Hashem what to do. Now let's get to the Purim story. You know, we know that always uh, Purim is not just a matter of uh, celebrating something that happened 2,000 years ago or eating hamatashin or putting on a mask, but it's a whole, it's a whole ultimate tikkun. Now what's the Purim story all about? So everybody knows the story. Um, and the reason that we know the story is because of Esther. If not for her, we wouldn't really know the story. 
she demanded and insisted that the Sanhedrin would get together and they put the Megillah as part of the Tanakh and it'd be recorded forever. And so we'll read the story, but I want to just focus on a few points to show how many numerous miracles happen in along the way in the story that we don't pick up on. We pick up in the end when everything turned around and I, that was a great part of the story. That's a miracle. But there were miracles right from the beginning. I'm going to put out, bring up a few points to get an idea of what happened. And then we'll have, a, we'll I'll try to understand why this all took place. So as we start the Megillah, the first thing is, Ahasuerus had a massive suda. And what happens, he gets drunk. He wants his wife to embarrass himself. Now, this is not, we're reading it in a story form. But what a disgrace to the king. And this king, who was he? He was, uh, what, he was he, his whole connection to the crown was through his wife. His father was a nobody. So the only reason he was sitting on the throne was because of his wife. So by, this, by asking her to disgrace, to embarrass herself, he was basically destroying the authority of the king. And that's ridiculous. I mean, who would hear such a thing? That was a miracle in itself that he would even want such a thing to happen. And besides that, he was a commoner. He had no royalty, no royal blood. So by killing, afterwards, by killing his wife, he cut his, himself out totally from any sort of, uh, being, from his claim to be king. And then later on, when he wanted to replace his wife with somebody else after he killed her, so what you usually find in the chronicles of, of kings throughout the generations for the last 3,000 years is usually... If they, the king now wants to marry a princess, he'll find another kingdom. So he could expand his rule and marry the, the, the daughter or whatever, the princess. Um, so, but this guy, Ahasuerus, he wanted a commoner. He, it it made, made no sense. And whoever heard of a king opening up a beauty pageant, a beauty contest? It's not normal. Also part of it, it was always miraculous. I'm sorry, miraculous. Finally, out of 127 contestants from 127 countries, who's Miss uh, Miss Persia, I guess, <laughs> Mrs. Persia, who's Miss Persia? Esther. Esther was 70 years old and green. <laughs> she had a green complexion. So out of all the people that he picked, he, picked, he didn't pick a teenager or a young girl. He picked a 70-year-old lady collecting Social Security. Now, that was a big miracle in itself. Then we read about Bixen and Sheresh. These are these two guys that are plotting to kill the king. And Mordechai happened to be in the palace at the time, overhearing this discussion. Now, if anybody had made such a plot, they would talk very quietly and no one should hear them. So the mere fact that they're standing in the palace talking about this very openly and loudly that Mordechai was able to hear them is also a miracle on its own. Finally, we read that Mordechai saves uh, the king. So you would expect, expect that basically uh, he should uh, elevate him to become a duke or give him a fancy estate, maybe an apartment in Yerushalayim, something, uh, something like that. I mean, he said that Mordechai saved the king's life. And nothing happened. And that also is part of the miracle. It's, it's not normal. We're reading it in the Megillah, but if you stop us and think, how could that be? This could never happen anywhere else. The man saves the lives of the king and nothing, just forget about him. Then we read about the king trying to go to sleep one night. 
and he can't sleep. So he tells his guys to bring out a book. Which book did he bring out? The most boring book that you could you could pick out from your library. The Chronicles of the Persian Government. I mean, who reads that? Who's interested in reading such things? Uh, that was also a miracle. And when they pulled out the volume, that volume for each year or each month, probably had it each month, they pulled out the book that had to do with Mordecai Samuel King. That's where they opened up the page. That was a tremendous miracle, the first shot. And then the, the Torah tells the Megillah tells us in the middle of the night, suddenly Haman appears to the palace. Nobody barges into the palace in the, in, in the, into the king's bedroom early in the morning. It's not, it's not, it's not heard of. A nace, another nace, a miracle. See, every step of the way, these are miracles that we, you know, they read the Megillah so quickly, we can barely catch it. So we get to the Haman and we bang. So these are the things that are along the way. We see all these miracles. Finally, what does Haman tell Achashverosh? That he's asking that Achashverosh give his crown, his horse, and everything he has, and parade the person the king wishes to honor, which he thought it was himself, through the streets. That was a sick idea. You don't tell that to a king. If you read the history books, kings are always worried about people plotting against them and taking over, overthrowing and usurping the crown. Very often the kings will wipe out, if you go through Tanakh, they wipe out their family members. They think their sons, their brothers, their mothers-in-law, I don't know, whatever it may be, are out to get their position, and they would wipe them out. And certainly advisors. So how do you have an advisor like Haman coming, suggesting to, to Ahasuerus to give such an honor that a king would get? I mean, it's totally crazy. It's a miracle that he even presented such a ridiculous advice. And finally, if the king Ahasuerus acquiesced, decided to give honor to Mordecai for saving his life, you want to give an honor to somebody, that's fine. But don't debase the guy who's highest in command. You put Haman in charge of everybody. You put him, you made him the top. So let some other guy, it doesn't have to be anybody. It could be a guard that could walk uh, Mordecai through the streets. Why did Mordecai choose to take Haman to walk with his personal enemy on the horse through the streets? Wouldn't that destroy Haman's position altogether? Why would Andres want to do that? He needs someone to run his operation. And finally, we are getting to the end of the story, and we find that Haman falls on top of the queen on her bed. That's suicide. <laughs> and that's a miracle. That's also a miracle that these things happen. And finally, at that very moment, the timing, that Chavona comes at that moment and announces to the king, hey, Haman built these 150-foot gallows outside the hangar of Mordechai. I mean, this is what time, this is an openness. This is Ashkacha Pratis 1.1. If you want to take the class in Ashkacha Pratis, this is the one. It's all here in the story. So, why all these miracles? This, this, this it's, it's an unbelievable story. Step after step, Hashem is doing miracles totally out of ordinary, somehow embedded in a teva, in a story. But you could see that the miracles are popping out from every, every, every sentence. So, of course, we know one of the reasons for the lessons of Megillah is Megillah Esther. Megillah means revealing, Esther means hidden. That uh, Shem wants to teach us as we go through the Galut, 
as we leave uh, when we were because in the time of the Purim story we the, we were we didn't have the Beit HaMikdash it was destroyed so I want to teach the, the Jew when he's in the Galut when things don't look good that she always remember that Hashem controls the world and every single thing and um, that's the primary lesson for the for the uh, Megillah now <coughs> another point in the story which is tremendously uh, important, is that when Mordechai meets up with Haman, he doesn't bow to him. He was the most powerful person in the, in the kingdom, second to the king and maybe even higher than the king, as we spoke before. But yet, Mordechai doesn't bow down to him. So the question is, when someone does that, why kill him? Why not just throw him into prison? And why, with such jealousy, why did Haman decide that he wants to wipe out the entire Jewish people because of one person. Uh, the Jews are hardworking, taxpaying, I mean, those days at least, citizens. They, were, they, they, they contributed a tremendous amount to the, uh, to the country. The mere fact that Mordechai was able to end up becoming an advisor to the king showed how much clout we had in the running of this country and, it's, and I'm certain, certainly in its finances, etc. So why would Haman want to do such a thing and destroy, wipe out such an important section of Klai Yisrael. And finally, why is it that Haman's lineage is repeated over and over again? Haman ben Amdasa Ha'agagi, he's the Agag, comes from from um, from, from Amalek. What, what was so important to know about that? And that's good. the answer to this will answer all the questions that we had. Knowing that Haman came from Moloch is very, very critical in the story. To really understand the Yisod of what's behind the, the Megillah, we need to know who Haman was. And since we said he's from Moloch, we really know, need to know who Moloch was. We had know that after Mitzrayim, after he came out of Egypt, and we went into the Midbar after all the miracles, there was one nation called Moloch. They weren't the biggest nation, a small nation. We were not a military threat to them because we were not traveling in their territory at all. We're traveling towards Yatishol in the desert, not anywhere near territories of Amalek. And Amalek had to travel five different borders to get to us, to fight against us. Now, why would Amalek do that? We were two million people. We had basically destroyed the largest country in the world, Egypt, which ran the whole world just about, we were able to overcome them, got out of Egypt with two million strong. Why this small little country, a small little group like Amalek, leave their home and go travel through five different countries to get to us to try to... It's a suicide operation. Why would they do that? And finally, why does Hashem hate Amalek? So what is this with Amalek? That we read in the Torah that Hashem hates them and he wants us to hate them. Now, there are many, many anti Semites, as we know, throughout all the generations. In fact, every generation wants to get us, every, every nation is out to get us. So, what's so special about Mr. Amalek? And why we, we know we have a halacha. It's not only halacha, it's Mr. Hussein, the Torah, Allah. We're not allowed to bear a grudge. But now I'll bear hatred. A Jew doesn't bear a grudge, and he has to forgive and forget. And um, yet, when it comes to Amalek, it's the only place. Hashem doesn't want us to forget. He wants us to bear a grudge. 
you know, can can you any them from two thousand years ago? Why is that? Well, what did Amalek do so different than Mitzrayim or anybody else? We're not commanded to hate Mitzrayim. In fact, we're commanded to appreciate that the even they hosted us for two hundred ten years, even though they 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 were subjugating us and they killed our children and all sorts of things. But still, the fact that we were there and ate, were able to eat and whatever. We have to have some sort of gratitude. But when it comes to Amalek, unbelievable. So the answer is like this. Amalek wasn't your run of the mill every day anti-Semites that's jealous of the Jews. Amalek wasn't jealous of the Jews. Amalek took on his battle against Hashem. He's totally different than every other anti-Semite. He wasn't going to attack the nation. He wanted to attack God. Why is it? Why would he want to do that? Because we find that man, man is, um, when the person was created, he's born very insecure. He's helpless. He's totally dependent, different than all other animals and creations. And over time, we begin to get our independence. So a human being, by nature, always wants to assert himself, that he's a something and not a nothing. That's uh, be normal. And he wants to show that he's in control. So if you go through the history of all mankind, you'll find that these three types of movements that there were throughout history, all expressing the fact that people want to gain control. There's one group that, there's one type of a person that wanted to be like God. Who was that? Adamarisha. That's why he ate from the Eitz Adas. He was told, listen, if you eat from this tree, you'll be like God. Who wouldn't want to be like God and be in full control? So that's why Adam did his sin. Then you had a group that wanted to overthrow God. They didn't say they were God, but they wanted to overthrow him. Who's that? That's Dora Flug that built that tower, the Tower of Babel and Babylon. They wanted to overturn him. And then you had these leaders that thought they were God themselves. That's like Paro. Bottom line is that uh, behind all these things, man wants to be the boss. Okay, so what? So that's where religion comes in. Religion was set up that you could pick and choose all the other religions and would go through them, give man an opportunity to still be in charge of himself and leave a little bit for God. So let's see how uh, we go through the list. Atheism. Those that don't believe in God, that's great for them. They can do whatever they want. So they take care of their insecurity. They're fully in charge. There's no God. Then you have the guy that's like Aristotle, the philosopher. They say, no, there is a God. He created the world. But it's beneath him to, to watch what we're doing over here. He's up in heaven. We're down on earth. We can do whatever we want. In fact, Aristotle in his life story was the or low life. And he acted like an animal as a human being. The history don't want to talk about it. But he was a terrible person as a human being. Because he believed in God totally, but pushed him all the way up in the heavens. That's another group. And then... You have you have Persia that believe there's two gods. There's a good god and there's a bad god. And you can choose which one you want. You might as well choose the bad god and do bad things and have a good time. That was what they thought. Then you have Greek. They had hundreds of gods. You could pick each god whenever you want. If you want to go have a dinner, pick the dinner god. You want to, you want to do this. You want to rob a bank. Pick a god that likes money. I don't know. They would have one for all of these things. The Muslims, 
they picked a god they liked to fight a lot, so they created a religion that um, allows them to do those things. Christianity, they picked a god that keeps on changing his mind. First, he gave the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then you don't listen to the Torah, you can do whatever you want. Finally, they came up with a fantastic thing called the priest. There you now, you confess and it's a confess and pay religion. What happens, you do whatever you want, you just got to pay for it. And the priest has the power to forgive. So you're, you're in charge, you're in control. And if you pay double, you may be able to get credit for the future things you do wrong. And they may even take credit cards. I don't know what they do today. It's really a win-win situation. You can do every sin in the world. And the church is, it collects a lot of money. So everybody's happy. So when we look at all these religions that we went through. They have all one thing in common. They want to neutralize Hashem and provide an exit for man to be able to do whatever he wants. Everything except for Judaism. Judaism is the only religion that stands out from all these other groups. We're the only ones that are totally not in charge. We have no freedom at all for the way they look at it. We're the ultimate freedom. We're freedom from our Yetzirah. But we look at the Torah and it dictates what we have to do from the moment we get up till we go to sleep. How we get up to wash our hands. How we tie our shoes. The left shoe first and the right shoe. Uh, you, you name it. Every step of the way, there's laws for the bathroom, there's laws for the dining room, there's laws for the workplace when you're dealing with people, with dealing with money. Hashem is at every step of the way. He's with us all over. Uh, every, there's laws governing every move you make. And that was a very, very, very big problem. Now, we know it's the greatest Yeshua for us, the greatest schut, the greatest opportunity the, the greatest pleasure that we have to be able to have Hashem in our life with us, it can, can be nothing much more happy than that. But for the outsiders, for the Amalek of the world, they felt threatened and challenged that there was a religion called Judaism that dictated, there's no other religion that does this. Everything that we do, no, they, no freedom. They felt threatened by us. And therefore, Amalek was the one they, who, was, who was the representative that hatred where he, and, and this came about by Hasinai when they saw Hashem came down on Hasinai, gave us the Torah and shows us as, the, as a nation. They, it says in the Gemara that Hasinai comes the word Sinai, Sonoi, hatred. That's where the hatred came about that they realized that uh, no, mankind doesn't want to be in control of themselves. And that's why uh, Amalek hated us so much. And now we understand where Mordechai didn't want to bow down to Haman, even though it was in his best interest to do so, he realized that Haman, that Mordechai did it. Haman realized that it's because Hashem doesn't let him. And he couldn't accept that. And therefore, he told Ahasuerus, these guys are different than all the other countries, all the other religions, because Judaism doesn't compromise uh, God like everybody else does. And the truth is, we have that no different uh, back then. We have the same thing today. We, uh, I don't want to quote, but in this Tomei book called the Mein Kampf from someone who I cannot say the words out of his name, he writes in Germany, writes in German, and quote, that we need to kill the Jews because they gave us a conscience. We are always feeling guilty of whatever we do. We cannot tolerate this. The Jews have made us wimps. That's his quote. Basically, he's expressing exactly what Amalek did, and that's that's what we have to fight against when we read the Megillah and we talk, think about Amalek. 
we have to remember that that the world doesn't want to tolerate the fact that we have a conscience. We don't have any loopholes in Judaism. And that was something they uh, you even see in Germany, that they they could have saved themselves in the end. So they used their soldiers, they used their army, they used them to bring the, us to the gas chambers instead of saving Germany at the end. Was at that point, when you get the level of hatred of Amalek, then uh, everything uh, comes worse. And that's why we really the costumes is that we're we're, we're, we're recognizing that the uh, Hashem is involved in anything, but it's camouflaged. I want to tell you something amazing. You know, where do we see Esther and Mordechai in the Torah? Now, this was said by Rabbi Weissman, who lived in the 1940s. He died in the end of the 40s. No computers, no search engines, no Bible codes. Off the bat, it's unbelievable. How many letters are there in the Megillah? Now, I don't expect you to guess, but it happens to be 12,110. 12,110. Michael, you'll figure out a gematria for that. 12,110. <laughs> now, you take the word Esther. Esther, the first letter, wisdom, Esther has four letters. Aleph. If we open up the Torah, what's the first word we got? Bereshit. In Bereshit, there's an Aleph. If we count 12,110 letters from that Aleph, we get Sama. We count 12,110 letters from that Samach, we get Tough. We do 12,110 letters from that Tough, we get Resh. The four letters, Esther, is spread out every 12,100 letters in the Torah, starting from the first word, which is unbelievable how we figured that out. But that's not enough. Mordechai, too. The Gemara says, we didn't know Mordechai in the Torah from. Show me a word in the Torah that represents Mordechai. So there's a pasuk that says Mordoror. It's a certain kind of spice. That's where we know Mordechai from Mordoror, pure spice. So from the mem of Mordechai, that word, we take mem, that's the first letter of Mordechai. Go 12,110 letters, we get resh. 12,110 letters later, we get dalit. 12,110 letters, we get pa. 12,110 letters, we get yud. Both Mordechai and Esther are hidden, um, represented in the Torah, in the in in, in the by the by the Megillah by the words of the Megillah. So uh, it goes to show how everything is uh, is 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 rumors in the Torah. Now we know that the Megillah is Gemachi seventy-eight. Michael, you will tell everybody what's seventy-eight. Three times Shem Avaya, three times twenty-six. It's Mazla. It's also Mazal. We all like to have Mazal, right? Good Mazal. Umar says, Bani, children, health, and Panasa all come from Mazal. So on the day that we read Megillah, we have a tremendous chance to be able to bring good Mazal to all of us. And who doesn't want who doesn't want Mazal? This is the uh, ultimate. Thank you, man. This is uh, Adam Charles from Raptor Security Group. Yes. Hi. Hello? Oh, okay. Now, um, I assume it's still on. Yes. Okay. We are, we're on, Rabbi. All right, fine. I want to tell over one more story. We said it maybe last year. If you don't remember it, it's a beautiful understanding. It has to do with one letter. One letter called the Ayin. Ayin is number 70. 
So I'm going to read you a pasuk. This is a fantastic, it's unbelievable story here. Esther hey, tells the king. Uh, just yeah. in case we got cut off, I'll send the Zoom invite again. Sorry. Okay. The Megillah tells us that Esther came to the king and she said, listen, my give me my soul and my, my nation because I was sold we were sold to be destroyed to be destroyed and killed if Haman would have made Xerah just that we become servants we, I would have been quiet I wouldn't have said anything but he wants to destroy us and Achishpah says what? Someone wants to destroy you? Who's that? Who wants to do that? So, the question is, what do you mean? Why is Ahasuerus surprised? He's the one who signed the edict. What's going on over here? Isn't he the one who signed? One who gave him the, the piece of paper that said, destroy all the Jews on the 13th, on the 14th of Nisan, of, of Adar? That was, he signed it. So, we're gonna, I'm going to tell a story. And with that story, we'll answer the question. This story is brought down by Rabbi Shreer, who lived a thousand years ago. It's an unbelievable true story. There was a wealthy guy that happened to have a Sefer Torah. Ezra Sefer Torah. Ezra HaSofer. Ezra. The Navi Ezra, he had his Sefer Torah. The famous Ezra Sefer Torah. That was part of his inheritance. It was written by Ezra HaSofer itself. And when he got older, he passed away, and he had two children. And the children had disputed who should get the Sefer Torah. Each one said, listen, I don't care about the millions of dollars, all the real estate, all the wealth that our father has. I just want the Sefer Torah. The other guy said, I want the Sefer Torah. I'll give you everything else. And they went to a Den Torah, and the Bezos said, you know, let them throw a goral. Whoever wins will, uh, will uh, get the Sefer Torah. And everyone agreed, both brothers agreed to that. And the lots were drawn. One of the brothers got the same third. The other one was happy. And you're and not coming it. in. Excuse me? You hear me? Uh, Musa, I think you should reset. Reset the... Uh... Rabbi, I hear no, you. You're good now. You're good now. You're good now. Okay. Oh, you're good. Okay. Okay. In that town, when this thing happened, there was a guy who was a Mishumad. He was, went off the... He was went out of the religion. And he was very jealous and very angry. What do you mean? These guys are fighting over Sefer Torah, giving up all their wealth for the Sefer Torah? And this guy was a Russia. So he decided, you know, I'm going to dress up like a religious Jew. And I'm going to go into the shul one day. And when they close the lights or whatever, I'm going to hide in there. And when everyone goes home at night, his plan was to take out the Sefer Torah from the Torah. And he'll, he'll make it possible. He opened up the Sefer Torah and took to the Pasuk. The Pasuk said, You should serve Hashem. Mm-hmm. Serve is with the letters Ayin based out. Serve. And he made a little, put a little ink in it, the Ayin to turn to Aleph. We know when you have an Ayin, you just have to put a little dot underneath it on the left side. You put another leg there and it turns into an Aleph from an Ayin. And La'abed means to destroy. So with an Ayin, La'abdam means to serve. With an alpha, means to destroy. So he messed up. You destroy Hashem. And he closed up the Torah. He made it possible. That weekend, they opened up the Sefer Torah. And the Baal Kohen opens up to that page. And he starts reading. And he collapsed when he read the words. 
They ran over what's going on and said, look, it says in Ezra, Sofa, Torah, with an Av, destroy. And the guy who owned the Sefer Torah was, was, couldn't, he, he couldn't be, he was besides himself. He said, I can never fix this. Even though you could fix the Sefer Torah. But you know, when you repair a Sefer Torah, even one letter, the guy who repairs it, it's as if he wrote the whole Sefer Torah. So this would never be Ezra, Sofa, Sefer Torah anymore if we fixed it. So like the whole thing went down the drain. And he went into a faint. And he saw his father in heaven. And his father in heaven told him, don't worry, I'll tell you exactly what happened with the Torah. This guy came in at night and he messed it up. And if you want to know that this is so, go back to shul and look under the table over there and you'll see his eyeball. His eye popped out when he took the iron. Iron means eye. Also, it's a letter I in and I. When he took that letter I and made it an olive, the eye popped out of his socket. I in tachad ayin. Mute yourself. Okay, we'll finish up the story now. That was the story. So that, um, so what happened? The guy lost his eye, but that still doesn't help us. We have a sevatar that's pasul. So his father told him. Then the Bezdin Shamalo, they went through this whole story here. These two righteous children who were willing to give everything up to the honor to have the Seva Torah. And we want to preserve that Seva Torah. So the father told his son, do not fix the Torah. It was decided in heaven they will take Ezra Sofa out of Gan Eden and they're going to send him down a little trip to come to the shul over there. And he's going to fix it himself. He'll remove, he will scrub out that extra piece of ink and turn the olive back to iron. So this way, uh, it will be a corrected Sefer Torah that Ezra Sofa corrected and wrote. And that's exactly what happened. That's the story that was recorded by Rishonim about a thousand years ago. An unbelievable story. What does that have to do with us? Because with this story, we'll now understand the whole soul behind Purim. Remember, Purim has to do with drinking wine. Wine is iron, 70. We'll see why. When Esther went to the king and she said, you know, if you would have sold us as servants, it's one thing. But he wants to destroy us. La'abdam, when, when, when Haman came to, uh, to King Ahasuerus to sign the edict to destroy, but they so didn't write destroy. He wrote La'abdam with a iron which means to, that we should be servants. Why would the king kill a, a whole big chunk of his nation, especially those that probably were doing very well in business and everything else? They would be absurd. So the only way Haman was able to get Ahasuerus uh, to agree to this crazy idea, and that even Esther was agreeable to, was if we become servants, Labdon with an ayin. But when it was sent out to all the countries, to the one countries, that's when Haman took the iron and he made it into an olive, just like that, uh, that Russia did. He made it into an olive to destroy them. And that's why Ahasuerus was shocked. Who's the one who did that? Who switched my words? I only agreed that they should be servants. I, should, I never agreed that they should be destroyed. So <clears throat> it's a very nice story. There's only one problem. Problem number one. Where were they? They were in Persia. This edict was written in Persian. 
<laughs> it was not written in Hebrew. And we're reading the story in Hebrew, but it's really in Persian. So how could we talk about the fact that said Abdu and an Ayn and an Aleph if it was in a different language? And the answer to that is that we have an unbelievable klal that it says, When Hashem punishes somebody, in the punishment you can see what's wrong. And that's a tremendous chesed Hashem does. Because as a person gets difficulties and sufferings, whatever it may be, it's the idea is not to punish. Hashem doesn't like punishing. He likes to be arousing people to fix what they need to correct. And sometimes in the message of the punishment, we learn things. It Rabbi, really you, 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 sorry, you mind repeating the last, just a punchline because Grandpa Joe wasn't on. Now he's yes. on. Oh, from the first part? Yes. 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 Sorry. Just okay, explain so, to him, just tell him the, the end of the story yeah. with that. Yeah, okay, I'll go over the end of the story again. It's a good story, so you go over many times. Forgive me, when, Grandpa Joe. Grandpa Joe, are you there? Yes, thank you. Thank okay, you. so we left off that this man, that the, this, this man who owned that Sefer Torah that was became Pasul, fainted. He saw his father in a dream, and the father told him the story. Listen, you know what happened? This was a real good Sefer Torah. Ezra Sofa wrote it. But there was this Rasha that came into Shul, and he made that iron into an off. He made it Pasul. And you'll know that it's true, because if you go back into Shul to, <clears throat> today and look under the table, you'll see an eyeball. When he took the iron and made it into an olive, it says in the Torah, iron tachet iron. An eye for an eye. We don't take it literally, but up there they took it literally. And when he messed up that eye, his eyeball popped out. And uh, <laughs> this is the true story. And he said, but still doesn't solve our problem because the Sefer Torah is possible and no one can fix it. Because the guy who fixes it, it means that it's his Sefer Torah. He fixes as if he wrote it. And we want Ezra to, the guy wanted Ezra to solve his Torah. So he said in Shemaim, they had a, the best of Shamala went through this whole story. And they decide in heaven they can do something very unique and special. They're going to ask Ezra Sofa to step out of Ganeidin for a half hour. I don't know how long it takes to get down to Olamazer. And make a little trip to this shul from heaven. And take a pen with him. And he should fix the Sefer Torah himself. And put the ink, uh, remove that, that, erase that leg of the iron that made it into an olive. And fix the Torah. So Ezra Sofa came down to fix the Torah. And everyone lived happily ever after. It was a beautiful thing. This way, the Torah was kosher. The Russia got his his punishment, and that was that. What does this story have to do with us? So that's what we were talking about. We asked the question earlier. Esther comes to the king, and she tells him, listen, look at this crazy edict. He wants to destroy my whole nation. If he would have said he wants to subjugate us, make us like servants, okay, I would have accepted. Abed, he wants... But he wants to destroy us. And the king said, what? Who wants to destroy you? Tell me who that is. I'll, I'll take care of him. <laughs> it says, Haman. But our question was, what do you mean? Didn't Ahasuerus sign the edict much earlier? Haman came to Ahasuerus originally and said, listen, I want to destroy this group. Please sign your name to it. And that's it. The answer is because when he gave the paper to Ahasuerus, it said, La'abdam with an ayin, not with an aleph. La'abdam with an ayin means three servants. So when Haman comes, he's the main guy in town. He's the viceroy of the king. And he says, King, I want to take this portion of your nation. The Jewish people wanted to become your servants. So you could get more money, whatever, they'll work for us. No problem. Where do I sign? Show me where to sign. That's the iron with Abdo with iron. 
after he got the edict signed by Achashverosh, he went out, took, bought a pen, and he made a little, uh, put a little piece over there, made the iron to an aleph, that they should be destroyed. When Achashverosh went out, who? I never said they should be destroyed. Who did that? Who messed up my signed edict and turned it from iron to aleph? We represent, we symbolize this by drinking our wine on Purim. Because our Yayin, Yayin, Yud Yud Nun, is 70. Yayin, Yud is 10, 10, and Nun is 50. 70, Yayin is 70, representing that Ayin, that 70 that, that they, we want to destroy us with. So, Grandpa Joe, you're coming in now where we just, we just were starting asking a question. This is a wonderful right. expert. And, and Joey? Hello? Musa. Musa, we don't hear you. Joe, Joe Sutton is asking, did they speak Hebrew in Persia? Because it was this isn't Hebrew. That's exactly where we, that's exactly our next question. Okay? Right. Our question is, this is a wonderful story. There's one problem. We're talking about Persian, not Jerusalem. They spoke Persian. The edict was written in Persian. So what am I telling you? That the boy went with an ayin and it was an olive. He changed it to an olive. It was written in Persian. So the answer is like this. Whatever happens down here is because the source, there's something that went wrong upstairs. The reason that this edict was signed down here is because it was an edict in Shemayim, in heaven. After the Jewish people celebrated and joined in that party where the Kamer the base of Mikdash were abused and misused and degraded, it was decided, Hashem decided to destroy Kaiso with the it was finished. It was it was uh, it was uh, fed to complete. Maybe originally it was supposed to be an iron, but then it turned into an olive. So all these things we read down here is because they happen upstairs, and we were mentioning that anytime there's a punishment given to Klal or even to an individual, it says in pasuk that ki chesed. It says lecha Hashem chesed to you Hashem. It's a chesed. It's a nice thing. that you repay a person for what he does wrong. Meaning, when we see the punishment that Hashem gives somebody, or a nation, or a country, we can learn from that what we need to fix. Because Hashem doesn't like to punish. He wants to just point out what needs corrected. And therefore, in the very thing that they did wrong, that's where they, um, that's where he pointed out the correction. Now, the Ayin and the Aleph are a very, very important thing. If you would ask me why we were created and what is our job in these 6,000 years, I would say to draw a small nakuda, to draw a to draw a little piece of a letter. That's all we're here for. What letter? We have to turn the ayin into an aleph. What's the ayin and what's the aleph? It says that um, it says in the Torah that Hashem made Adam and his wife cut no or Clothing of Ar, he clothed them with Ar. The Torah reads Ar, Ayin, Vavresh, means skin. We have a body, a physical body. That's with an Ayin. Gemara says, our mayor, in his Sefer Torah, it said, Kostnos Ar with an Aleph. That again, clothing of light, of, of shining uh, bright, uh, of light, spiritual clothing. Now, the difference between Kostnos Ar and Kostnos Ar with an ayin and an aleph, is what our job is in this world. The world's a physical world. Physical world is, 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 is represented by the, or the skin, which is uh, the chitzon, the external. 
Our job is to bring out the or the, that's behind it, the lights, to turn the physical into spiritual, to turn the mundane into holy, to turn the iron into an olive. That's our job, to draw that extra piece and make it to an olive. Because we didn't do that, therefore we got a home in Russia, took that iron and made an olive in the opposite way to destroy us. Had we done it the right way and take the custom out with an iron and brought Kedusha to it and made it like an olive, it would have been different. Now, it's interesting that when it says that Ramea's Sefer Torah had an olive in it, how can that be? We know even one letter of Sefer Torah is not right, it's Pasul. How could the Gemara tell us that that the Medrash, it's a Medrash, I'm sorry, not a Gemara, Medrash in Beresh Swabo. How could Ramez, uh Torah have the word Aleph in it instead of Ayin? All our Savitors have Ayin. Hashem made them a, a garment of skin. And the answer is, of course, he had the same thing. But Ramea elevated himself. He was so, he, he refined himself to such a level that is as if it was Kusnas or as if it was R. His, his skin was shining like, like, like R. And uh, that's basically our Vodah. And we, we, if you, now with this information, we'll find that it says in the Apostle, that it's a time of difficulty for Kaisal. Let's say it's describing Purim. Mimena is the word Mehaman. From Haman, we can be saved. We have to learn from Haman, just like Haman took that iron and turned it into an olive. We have to learn from that also, we have to take that our iron and turn it into an olive. One of the ways we do that is in the mitzvot of the holiday. One of the mitzvot we have is we have to give matanot lev yonah, we have to give tzedakah. Now tzedakah saves from death. What is and ani is ayin. Right, mavet is mem vav tov. You throw the iron in and you got ma'od, money. Money saves from death. The iron, that's that same iron. We have to use the iron, use it for kedushah. And I want to end everyone with a blessing. They should have a Simchat Yom Tov. Remember what it said in the beginning. How powerful the feels are on that morning. Uh, if you try to pray nets if you can. It's late. Uh, it's at six thirty. It's not really. Uh, it's not that. Not that uh, early. It's it's um, reasonable. Uh, whenever you pray, have a mind that we Hashem should have Rachmanut on us. Amen. We don't really go anymore. Klali Sol wants to have our Beit HaMikdash. We're not even asking for us. We want to enjoy. We want to enjoy the glory. We want to sit back and watch how the nations of the world, what's going to look at in their face when they see the Emet. We have the Emet. We have that inner joy. We have that R. We want to turn the iron of the iron nations, 70 nations. Here again, you got another iron there. The wow. 70 nations to turn to R. Oh, have a wonderful holiday, everybody. Glad to see everyone. Smiling. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you.